This is the Ned Group Investments Podcast, a space where you can learn more about our fund managers, the funds they manage, as well as getting up-to-date and important developments affecting the investment world and how they might be relevant to you. Good morning, everybody, and thanks for joining us today for the third quarter update of our Ned Group Investments Balance Fund. My name is David Levinson. I'm an investment analyst here in the Best of Breed team in Ned Group Investments. And we are very fortunate to have on the call today both Saul Miller and Ian Power from Truffle Asset Management. And not to give away their age, they have a combined almost half a century of industry experience. So I'm sure the next 30 minutes will prove incredibly insightful and interesting to yourselves and your clients. Some quick housekeeping before we get started. I'm sure you're familiar with these sessions by now, but there is a Q&A function on the right-hand side of your screens. And what I'll try to do towards the back end of the presentation is pose as many questions as I can to both Ian and Saul. And of course, this will be recorded should you wish to watch it again at a later stage. Before I do hand over to Saul, who will take us through the presentation over the course of the next 15 to 20 minutes, I'm sure you're very well aware of the performance of the Ned Group Investments Balance Fund performing in the top quartile across all major time periods. That's a one year, three year, five year, seven year, and again since inception. So a very proud performance of the fund and I think testament to Ian, Saul and the team at Truffle. So without further ado, I'd like to pass over to Saul, who will present for the next 15 minutes or so. Thank you, Saul. Thanks very much, David. Thanks everybody for attending our presentation. I'm just going to start with a quick slide on our performance. I won't spend much time on that. I'm sure everyone's aware of that. And then I'll move on to our economic views of South Africa and the world and how that shapes our portfolio. Okay, so that's the, the performance slide over all time periods going back to inception. And you can see our performance relative to the ASISA category average. Just a quick comment on what's worked for us and hasn't worked for us in the last year. Unsurprisingly, it's been commodities and the RAND head shares like NUSPAS and BTI and so on that have added to performance and the detractors have been more the domestically exposed businesses. So the domestically exposed portion of our portfolio is relatively small. Most of the portfolio is in RAND hedge and commodity type shares, but we do have some in the domestic domestically exposed companies and those have, um, have detracted a bit from performance. So, I mean, if, if, I, if I just take you through quickly through some of the specific shares, as I said, NUSPAS has done well for us. We still have a sizable portion in NUSPAS. We think it's very cheap. It's trading at a record discount to 10 cents. It's key underlying holding. So that provides quite a lot of valuation support and 10 cents also hasn't really rated as much of a lot of the US tech companies that are actually looking quite expensive. So that's why we're quite happy to still own a position in NUSPAS. BTI did very well over COVID, quite defensive being in tobacco and into that outperformance of BTI, we actually sold out of it, reduced our exposure, and moved quite a bit of that into shares that had been quite hard hit into COVID. So we bought cheaper shares as a result. And then we still have quite a sizable position in the PGM sector that continues to do well for us. We still like that sector. We think there's quite a strong underpin for the PGM basket, particularly for palladium and rhodium, given the supply, supply and demand dynamics. And the shares that we own, or the particular miners that we own, are trading on very cheap valuation multiples. So Sibanya and Parler trading on three PEs. So quite happy to maintain a position there. And the detractors being quite broad based in the SA industrials and financials, which haven't really recovered post this, this collapse in, in COVID. Netcare is a share that we've actually been buying into weakness. We would think that's a share that'll actually recover over time. You would think that eventually people are going to have to go back to hospital. All these elective procedures that have been deferred ultimately will have to be, these people will have to be treated. So you would expect volumes in the hospitals to, to recover to levels close to pre, to, to what they were pre, pre-COVID. 
Let me move on to our economic views. And you can see here on the slide really three key themes that I'm sure everyone reads and hears about in the in the papers. The first is the unprecedented levels of fiscal stimulus that we're getting across the world. And then secondly, the very accommodative monetary policy that just seems to get more and more accommodative, low interest rates and QE. And the fact that although we're getting a bit of a recovery and growth, we're still not seeing much by way of inflation ticking up yet. So let's start with a slide that really addresses the level of fiscal stimulus and also talks about the fact that debt levels in many countries are actually going to be increasing quite a bit as a result of this pandemic. So a couple of couple of interesting points to make on this slide. You'll see light bars and dark green bars. The light bars are the expected budget deficits that we're going to get in countries this year as a result of the pandemic and as a result of fiscal stimulus. The dark green bars is this level of stimulus that we saw over a three-year period during the GFC or during the financial crisis of 10 years ago. And what you'll notice that pretty much most countries are spending a substantial, substantially larger amount. So there's a dramatic amount of fiscal stimulus that is going into many economies that is gonna raise savings rates for individuals. And as things improve, if we get a vaccine and as COVID issues recede, you obviously have a lot of money on the sidelines that can get injected into the economy from the bank accounts of individual households. Some other important points to, to make here, you'll see that the US is on the left-hand side. They are spending by far the most compared to other, other regions. So we're seeing a much higher increase in US debt levels versus other countries. And that obviously puts quite a bit of pressure on the dollar, which I'm gonna get back to in a few more slides time. Another important point to notice here is you'll see China has also increased their level of fiscal stimulus. And as you're aware, China has quite an impact on commodities because they demand, they are about 50% of metals demand. So when they increase their, their spending, that usually is very positive for commodities. And we're seeing that in, in commodity prices that have obviously been rallying quite strongly. And that provides an extra pillar to why we quite like commodities and why it is a sizable portion of our funds. So aside from them just being quite cheap and trading on low P multiples, there are macroeconomic tailwinds for commodities as well. And China is clearly a key key driver of that. Just looking at a slide that talks to monetary policy, there are two lines here. There's a dark green line and a light green line. The light green line are bond yields in the US, which you can see are reaching record lows. And the dark green line is the level of expected inflation implied by government bonds. So it's you can think of it as it's, it's the expectation of inflation over the next 10 years as implied from the US bond market. So you can, what you can see here, the reason why bonds have come down so dramatically and are trading at such a, a low level, below 1%, I think they're about 0 0.7, 0 0.7% today, is because the Fed has introduced a much more accommodative monetary policy. They're now targeting average inflation levels. So before, if inflation went above two, you would have seen some action and some tightening from the Fed, but now they, they actually want average inflation to be below two. So even if inflation over, overshoots for a while, you will still see a continuation of this very lax monetary policy. And the fact that bonds are so low is telling you that the markets really believe the level of aggression that the Fed is, is employing. Another interesting point is if you look at the level of inflation, the dark green line, you can see it did dip a little bit and then came back as we've had a bit of an improvement in global economies, but it's still sitting at a very low level. We probably have implied or expected inflation sitting at about 1.6%. So despite all the fiscal stimulus, the low interest rates, we still don't have much of an expectation of inflation. 
there is no expectation of any kind of inflation surprise being priced into bond markets, which obviously could be a risk going forward. The low, the low rates of interest that you're seeing in the States, also another factor that is obviously negative for the dollar, since you're getting less of a return from the dollar. But what's probably most important to see here is that the bond rates are actually less than inflation now. So you're currently getting a negative real return on bonds. So that obviously means investors want to find better returns and where do they go? They go to equity markets. So it's not surprising that we have seen quite a strong rally in equity markets. And if you look at the growth shares or the FANGs, in other words, US tech like Amazon and Facebook and Apple and so on, they are far more sensitive, they have a much higher level of sensitivity to long-term interest rates. So it's not surprising that they have run harder than the rest of the market. And obviously that is a risk that one has to bear in mind when putting together a portfolio if you look here at this slide, which shows you economic surprises, so ourselves, like most of other most other market participants, have obviously been or were quite surprised by the swift recovery in the globe post-COVID, and that's really showing up in this economic surprise index. In other words, actual what actual experience that we're seeing in economies has been much better than what would have been expected going into the COVID crisis. And you obviously see this in various economic statistics, whether it's leading indicators and ISN numbers and confidence levels, they've all increased quite um, quite substantially. What I have here is, a, is an interesting slide that goes back 100 years, and we're really looking at two series here. We're looking at bond rates, 10-year uh, bond rates, which you can see are at record levels, and the dark green line is the debt to GDP level in the States, and the red part of that dark green line are the forecasts. And you can just see the level of that dramatic increase going from close to 100% of GDP to over 140% in the next two years. Not only is it quite dramatic, it's actually more dramatic than most other regions, and it is higher than what it was in World War II when we reached 120. So we have record levels of debt and stimulus going into the economy being funded at negative, essentially at negative real rates. It's almost free free funding. So clearly this increases the probability of, of an inflation surprise. We're not saying it has to happen. We're just saying this must must increase the probability of that, um, of that inflation surprise. If you get that inflation surprise, we could definitely start seeing a reversal of bond rates. I mean, we, we definitely got to the end of the bull market in bonds. Might stay here for an extended period of time, but the next move is either going to be sideways or it's going to be up. So we, we're certainly reaching the end of this 40-year bull market, which has been very positive for equities. And that's clearly the risk going forward that one would worry about when you're forming a portfolio, is you want to be particularly cautious when it comes to the shares that have really benefited from these very low interest rates. We don't think all shares have benefited from low interest rates. As I've said, you know, we, we've also invested in commodities. A lot of these are trading on single digit PE ratios. So we don't think they would be necessarily negatively affected if you take a medium term view. And there are a lot of other sectors one, one, could, um, one could talk about. Financials clearly have been hurt by very low interest rates. If we get a reversal of that, that would be positive for, for financial shares. So there are opportunities to invest in despite the fact that we are in this very low interest rate environment and should a change could be could be negative for markets but just to re-emphasize we are yeah we we yeah we're doing our utmost to try and avoid shares that have really been major beneficiaries of this and we have kept those to a minimum in the in the portfolio i just want to make one more comment about the dollar or about the, the global economic environment before i move on to SA. The dollar's become very, very topical. We've seen it underperforming. I've already mentioned these comments about debt levels 
in the US escalating at a much higher rate than other regions in the world, and that puts pressure on the dollar. But if we look at um, PPP or purchasing power of parity, which looks at the long-term value of the dollar, it is far more extended than most other currencies in the world. And you can see here, we have the dollar trading at close to 12% above its value and many other currencies trading at quite significant discounts. So that on a long-term view is not is not positive for the dollar. And then probably more importantly, and the, the factor that would have a more immediate impact is the interest rate differentials between the US and other regions. And what I what I have here on the left is the real returns or real bond returns from the US versus Europe. A year ago, you were getting about a percent to one and a half percent carry over US, which is quite substantial. That is almost close to zero. And that's clearly a significant headwind for the dollar and partially explains some of the, of the decline that we've seen in the dollar. So we think this is going to continue. I'm not sure how much it's going to fall by, but we certainly think the direction is definitely to the downside. So why is this important? It's particularly important for commodities. We know that commodities have quite a strong correlation to the dollar. Generally, a weaker dollar is positive for commodities. So aside from valuations being reasonable for commodity miners, you also have a weaker dollar that's positive. And as I mentioned earlier, you have Chinese expenditure that's picked up quite substantially, which is also positive for commodities. So there are quite a number of factors that are very favorable for mining shares at this, um, at this stage. Finally, I just want to touch on, um, on South Africa. We think the SA environment is still highly uncertain, but we do think there have been some positive moves in the last month, and I just want to address some of them. First of all, I think for the first time in a long time, we are seeing some arrests. We're seeing people charged with corruption. We obviously accept that we're not seeing it at the higher levels of government that we would like to see it, but it certainly is a step in the di in the right direction, and it's it's certainly better than what we've had for quite some time. So we think that is a is a positive, and we hope that continues. We've seen NERSA has approved a plan to tender about 12 gigawatts of, of power, and a lot of that will go into renewable. And that's obviously positive, not on the short term, but on the medium to long term, that will obviously solve the blackout, um, the blackout problem that we've been having, or the rolling, the rolling blackout. So we think that's very positive. They cast a tender that's every that everyone has obviously heard about as well is also very, very positive. That'll raise some some money for the fiscus. But those well, those are the those are the, the very positive factors. Not everything has been positive. I'd say that the the two key negatives have obviously been the fact that Treasury is still looking to fund SAA for a bailout, which we think is is disappointing. We still have to see how that that pans out. And then the other thing that we're really waiting for is some significant sign off on infrastructure projects. If we're going to solve this very negative or upward sloping trajectory of debt to GDP in South Africa. It's not just fiscal consolidation that we need. We also need to see GDP growth and a big part of GDP of big, sorry, a big part of GDP growth is obviously going to come from infrastructure spend. If we want to see SA companies investing in South Africa, I think it's going to have to be led by government. So we have to see sign off on government projects, which will obviously help employment and GDP growth and will improve our debt to GDP ratio. So we're not quite seeing that yet. And that's still a key, a key factor that, that we're hoping comes through in the, in the short term. And obviously we're waiting for the medium term budget, which has been delayed by a week. But that's where hopefully we'll get some guidance on just how on how tough Treasury is going to be on fiscal consolidation um, and how they're going to treat SOEs going forward. So we obviously wait for that and we, we hope that there is a reasonably positive message that comes out of that comes out of the, the medium term budget. 
Just a quick comment on, on, SA, on SA shares before I move on to my final summary slide. Valuations in, in South Africa obviously come down. Optically, SA companies look cheap, whether it's SA equities or whether it's, it's property, and you're having slightly better news flow, as I've, as I've alluded to. So we have upped our exposure to domestic companies. It hasn't been significant. It's been quite conservative. We're really just talking a few percent. And we, we're looking for businesses that have strong balance sheets. In other words, businesses that can sustain themselves over a prolonged downturn in the economy as a result of COVID. And we're looking for businesses that are not pricing in overly high levels of optimism, since there is a lot of uncertainty as to how things are going to pan out in SA. So, I mean, I mentioned earlier, Netcare was a company that we bought into, and that's really, it talks to the fact that you've got balance sheet strength, they can sustain themselves over a prolonged, tough economic period, and they are not discounting an overly optimistic outlook. And they should, because they are ultimately a defensive business, you expect their turnovers to revert to what they were pre-COVID. Astral is another company that we've been increasing our exposure. Once again, you would think the consumption of chicken would be fairly defensive over, over time. I'm not going to go through the, the, the entire list of companies, but that just gives you a bit of a, a feel for some of the, the companies that we have been purchasing that are domestically exposed. So just to end off and just to really go through what I've, or to summarize what I've been talking about, this risk of, of interest rates increasing offshore is obviously a worry. We want to avoid companies that have really benefited from that. So we're avoiding high priced equities like your fangs in terms of, especially in terms of our offshore holdings. We do have tech exposure. Tech will obviously continue to grow, but we'd rather take that through NASPES, which has probably even more promising growth prospects than a lot of the than a lot of the fangs if you look at them as a basket. And we get a nice valuation underpinned by the fact that NASPES is trading at a at a record discount to, to 10 cents. We are maintaining quite high levels of exposure to commodities. And as I've, I've, I've mentioned, the various macro factors, China spend is coming through, a weaker dollar is positive, and probably most importantly is the fact that they are very cheap. We, we all, our, all our commodity shares that we own are on single digit multiples, which we think is, is very positive. And as I mentioned earlier, the PGM shares, which are the largest portion of our commodity basket, are trading on PEs of close to three times, which are our record low levels. In terms of SA, we think we think things are improving, but the environment still remains highly uncertain. So we still maintain our high exposure to our RAND head shares. In other words, the companies that are listed on the JSE, but are ultimately exposed to offshore markets like Naspers and Quilter and Anheuser-Busch and, and so on. And we have upped our exposure to some of the domestically focused businesses, but these are really the, the quality businesses with strong balance sheets that aren't pricing in an overly optimistic environment. And then finally, just our asset allocation slide, you can see here that the, that the portfolios, the bulk of the exposure is, is offshore or rand hedge exposed which we still think is, is necessary. And our equity is standing just above seven and we have a few hedges in place. We've hedged about 3% of our offshore equity and we have a small hedge of about 2% of, of domestic equity. And I'm not gonna go through each um, each sector here. I, I, yeah, if there are any questions about it, please please, please feel free to, to ask me. I'll, I'll hand over to you, David. Thanks very much. Fantastic, thanks Fantastic. very much. Thanks very much. Uh, you'll be happy uh, to know we've had a ton of questions coming through here. And I'll try to work through them in chronological order in terms of how you presented and get through as many as you possibly can. The first one is, and you mentioned the fangs earlier as well, and obviously the, the question is around the, the long bond rates obviously being relatively low and in search of yield, a lot of people are 
are going to the fangs in search of yield. And obviously this has propped up those valuations and you have largely avoided those on a valuation basis. And your colleague, Nicole, I know wrote a fantastic note on the fangs. So maybe touch a little bit on that in terms of how the, the bonds are affecting the valuation on the fangs. And then also, I guess, in terms of North America, I know off the top of my head, you do have Cigna, which is a healthcare and insurer on, in the fund at the moment. Maybe some of the investment case behind that. And I know these healthcare stocks are always particularly interesting in, in, a, in a voting year in the US. Okay, I'll answer the first part and then I'll, I'll hand over to Ian. So on, on the fangs, I mean, they have, they've obviously had superb, um, superb earnings growth and it's, it's, I would say it has certainly surprised investors' expectations if we go back over the last 20 years. But up until about three years ago, what we've, what we've started seeing with the fangs is that, yeah, well, up until, up until three years ago, earnings have driven a lot of the growth in, in the fangs shares. What we've seen of late is really more of a growth via rating. In other words, the PE multiples or the valuations have expanded. So it's not that one is necessarily negative about the growth outlook for for the for these shares it's just that their valuations have increased quite dramatically and, have, and the shares have risen well ahead of earnings it's not the case for all of them but for some of them it's been particularly extreme like the likes of a, of a apple and a microsoft where we've really seen a dramatic increase in their in their pe levels whereas if you look at at 10 cent it's actually trading quite close to its historic levels so that's obviously gives one a bit more comfort in terms of in terms of valuation in terms of the impact of long bond rates on, on the fangs, on growth shares. I'm, I'm just trying to think about how to answer this in a way that doesn't put people to sleep. It's a little bit technical, but ultimately growth shares are what you would say are very long duration. Their cash flows are very, very far into the future. If you have a, an asset, whether it's a bond or an equity, the further your cash flows are out into the future, the more sensitive you are to the interest rates that you value those cash flows at. So you essentially, so when, when rates come down, it has a much bigger impact on a, on a growth company that has their, their cash flows, which are very, very far into the future, as opposed, to a as opposed to a value share, where much more the value is really sitting in the next few years, where the interest rate impact is far, is far less. And that really, that, that talks to a, to a compound interest kind of view and a discounting, and a discounting factor. I, I hope that that is, um, gives some, some clarity on that. And then Ian, do you want to just talk about the, the healthcare? Yeah, uh, David, so I guess, you know, uh, first of all, from a US perspective broadly, most of uh, the US companies' ratings have moved up significantly, as is evidenced by overall S&P 500 forward multiples sort of circa north of 21 times. But, you know, Cigna uh, and some of the health shares are interesting examples of where you can still find exposure to pretty good assets at, you know, almost half the cost of what it would cost you to buy one unit of S&P 500 cash flow. So Cigna, for example, you know, really a very attractive managed healthcare play in the US where they are industry leaders in so far as volume growth in terms of enrollments, new lives that they sign on every year. Most of their plans, 87% of their plans have four star ratings and above and their clinical outcomes are, you know, far uh, superior than many of their peers and to sort of top it all off they've been able to keep premium increases two percent below industry average for you know the last uh, five six seven years and that's really testament to the fact that they've been able to grow their volume so here's a business that's giving you double digit earnings growth in dollars so you know almost similar to uh, some of those those big tech companies that uh, Saul spoke about you know you're in the teens 
and they are expecting to earn $21, 20 to $21 of earnings next year, $8 billion of free cash flow, and the stock is trading at about $170. So you're looking at like an eight times multiple and compare that to S&P 500, which is around about 20 times. And we think that the earnings and this business's ability to continue to compound given its competitive position still looks pretty good. So, you know, there's an example of a good value opportunity in the in a market like the US, which is, you know, generally still fairly expensive, but we have significant margin of safety to the extent that we're paying a low, a low multiple for it. And I think that's what we've tried to do with many of our offshore holdings is we've tried to find exposures to these decent businesses where there's some underlying asset value or there's some margin of safety in so far as you know, buying into, you know, what one rand's worth of value at at a discount. And I mean, Cigna is just one of those companies in the healthcare sector, which is quite cheap. And I mean, you know, you referred to potential regime change in the US to the extent that we might have Democrats, you know, that, that come into power. And I suppose, you know, this is always a concern around potential regulation of uh, pharmaceutical prices and healthcare prices. But where Cigna is uh, in a different position is that their part of their proposition is to be able to offer medical cover to their clients at the cheapest possible price. So they are trying to, you know, um, procure pharmaceuticals, drugs from a lot of the big uh, manufacturers at the cheapest possible prices because they share in some of that saving with their clients in the end to the extent that you know, they can offer more affordable healthcare. So, I mean, this is a stock which we think is less exposed to some of the risks that perhaps you're referring to and, you know, maybe more of the drug manufacturers which have been accused of of gouging and earning super returns perhaps might be, you know, more under pressure. But we think Cigna, a good little business, growing, taking share, with you know in a in a market where we see good long-term drivers for them to 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 continually grow their earnings at double digits excellent thanks very much gents that's actually quite a nice segue into the next question we have here around what are some of the meaningful offshore holdings that you you have in the fund so obviously you mentioned Cigna. you've recently added a little bit more of ping on vivendi has been quite meaningful over the last couple of quarters maybe just discuss some of those and then how you define quality yeah, so I, I think all of those shares which you've spoken about are similarly priced to the extent that the valuations or the multiples that we're paying are, you know, either below their, their long-term median multiple. Uh, you know, in the case of a ping on, you, you're buying the stock on a forward multiple of just over 10 times, still managing to grow premiums, you know, uh, double digits, you know, the businesses also got a big tech element to it. And there's, there's there's lots of growth growth initiatives that we can see in this particular business. And if you just think from a Chinese perspective, perhaps what COVID has brought about is an awareness around healthcare, you know, and uh, Ping On being, you know, the preeminent insurer, I guess, from a from a Chinese perspective, you know, the, the they surely will stand to, to benefit also from their exposure to some of their tech solutions to be able to take you know cover to their to their uh, target market but i mean the bottom line is is that 
we're looking to buy into businesses which are reasonably priced or where their valuations or PEs are, are, are low enough to give us a margin of safety. Ping On is a good example of that and where there's some sustainable growth. Vivendi was an investment that we made during COVID closer to sort of 20 euros a share, 19 euros a share. It's up at about 25 euros today. And what we liked about that business is the United Music Group represents the bulk of the value from some of the parts basis. And United Music Group, as many of you will know, if you have Spotify, Deezer, Apple Music, whenever you play one of those songs, United Music own a huge catalog of many of those artists and control the distribution rights for those songs and then negotiate with the likes of those principals, Apple, etc., when you know they are offering their their music apps to to obviously all of us. And you see more and more people switch to streaming, and this plays into this particular business model. So they're getting double-digit revenue growth, and you know we think it's very very attractively priced. And in fact, so does Tencent, because Tencent bought a 10% holding in the United Music Group from Vivendi, and they've subsequently exercised an option to buy another 10%, which values just the United Music Group at 30 billion euros. And the current market cap for the entire Vivendi Group, which includes a whole host of other assets, is around about 25 billion euros. There's also a proposed IPO for the United Music Group in 2023, which we think will catalyze an unlock of value in this broader group, where the market we think will reward a high quality growth asset, which is almost tech like because it's benefiting from this disintermediation of, you know, people streaming music via these types of partners as opposing to, you know, buying and downloading your songs. So we think that that business, if it trades anywhere close to the Warner Music Group, which is the one of their big competitors in the US, there's a significant value unlock. And on our, some of the parts basis for Vivendi, we can get a, a value anywhere between 35 euros and 40 euros compared to the current share price of 25 euros with a with an event coming in 2023, which is not that long away, which we think will unlock a big chunk of that value um, in the United Music Group. The rest of some of the holdings, Philip Morris, you know, very attractively priced, 13 times forward multiple, 6% dividend yield growing high single digits in dollars. Most of their assets are in emerging markets unlike British American Tobacco, which has a big chunk of their earnings coming from the US. Saul's already alluded to the fact that we're expecting the dollar to, to go into a period of cyclical weakness. There might also be some arguments for some further structural weakness in the dollar. Um, and we think that th those companies, you know, which have less focus then on some of those, those US assets could do better. In addition to that, we also have exposures to you know, some other value stocks, AbbVie, which is a pharmaceutical manufacturer offshore, they focus mostly on immune conditions, you know, great pipeline in the business, also trading on a single digit PE, north of a 5% dividend yield in dollars. So once again, the theme of margin of safety insofar as looking for decent businesses trading on, on lower multiples, which have the ability to compound their earnings into the future. So those are some of the examples of some of the, the bigger offshore positions that we have, but you're happy to uh, go into the detail of some of the smaller ones if you if you want to. Thanks for that, Ian. 
I guess the next question and probably the final one we have time for today is, is around China. And as we know, China has become increasingly important in our lives as South African and of course our resource listed companies as well. And so now I've been chatting a fair bit around the PGM basket and you've switched a little bit between between gold and, and, and PGM over the course of the last quarter or so. And the question goes back even you know over 10 years ago to the global financial crisis and China's big infra infrastructure spend and how that supported commodity prices. And then what in your view is supporting the current bounce in commodity prices at, from China? And is it different this time around? Yeah, so I mean, I would say that, you know, we can be very thankful as South Africans being in a resource based economy that we do have a country like China, which is first of all navigated COVID much better than any other country around the world, bar perhaps New Zealand and a handful of others. But the reality is China today is already above where they were this time last year. So in other words, you know, COVID is largely something uh, which is which is behind them. And I think their big lever, which they have been pulling, is the the fixed asset investment portion of the economy, which remains large. And yes, they're trying to switch to a more service consumer based economy, but fixed asset investment still makes up 40% plus of their GDP. And to the extent that they've been able to continue to drive investment with a change where historically maybe buildings was a bigger component now where they're moving more into renewables, into high-speed rail, and to other more sustainable infrastructure products. But what this is doing is it's providing quite, quite a nice underpin for commodity demand. And commodity prices as a consequence have then you know, been, been fairly high to the extent that SA's terms of trade, you know, we are enjoying the benefit of, of low oil prices and very high other commodity prices which I think is, is a massive benefit for the SA economy. And we can't see that changing in the short term. And if anything, we think that other Western uh, countries and developed countries are likely to adopt further investments in their own infrastructure, many of which is archaic and you know was built 100 years ago as a means of stimulating growth in their own economies. And that's one of the reasons, in addition to what Saul has spoken to, why we think that it's a good place to put capital is in a lot of these resource-based shares because not only do you get that protection from you know even if long rates kick and we and inflation expectations rise but you've got the fact of low valuations and the potential that other western world countries are likely to now try and increase expenditure on infrastructure to prop up and increase productivity in their own economies. And one only has to just drive to JFK airport and missing potholes the size of where donkeys could disappear, where bridges are creaking to get a sense of the age of some of the infrastructure in a lot of these Western countries where you would expect there's a huge opportunity to increase productivity and to, and to invest in a lot of those assets. And I think those are a lot of the big long-term drivers that we think should Result in commodity prices staying staying elevated. In addition to your to your question on China. Excellent, thanks, Ian. I am going to go back on what I said earlier regarding time and how many more questions we have because I think this is a very important question that's come through here, just regarding South African balance funds, which are still underperforming SA income, and what exactly needs to change, and when does it need to change in order for that to to turn around? Yeah, so I think that's a that's a great question. And I mean, to the extent that you've got 
I guess, a backdrop that Saul sketched of, you know, almost the South African economy being shackled by a lot of self-imposed structural issues which, you know, government has been dithering in so far as taking decisive decisions. I think that in itself needs to change and really to create a backdrop for many domestic companies to generate better returns. And unfortunately, a lot of other balanced funds perhaps had exposures to many domestically focused businesses in the hope of a mean reversion. In other words, looking at at pure valuations and saying that optically they look cheap. But the problem is you don't necessarily just get mean reversion unless earnings recover. And we've at Truffle have been saying for quite a long time for the last three years where we've been cautious on on many of these SA Inc shares that the earnings recovery is also going to be a function of the extent to which government takes the necessary steps to put the economy on a on a on a sustainable recovery path and to create a backdrop where companies can continue to grow and i mean how is it possible that we are saying inflation is sort of three to four percent yet most of our big corporates are paying rates and taxes water electricity price increases of double digits per annum i mean how is this you know where does that additional money come from at the end of the day it's going to eat away at your margins so we need to create an environment of policy uh, investor consumer certainty where you can start to get the flywheel turning. And I think Saul referred to infrastructure. We're going to hear the national recovery plan at one o'clock today. And, you know, let's hope that there is going to be uh, some decisions taken on many of these issues, which we think there could be some easy wins, which would provide the opportunity for lots of these SA Inc shares, which are optically cheap to experience the earnings recovery and thereby flow through to many of the balanced funds South Africa, where lots of our clients have got, you know, still significant exposures to, and you could see quite a quite a nice uplift in terms of those asset valuations. But we need to see some some uh, decisive action first. It's not just going to happen by itself. I mean, one 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 additional comment I'd make is the difference now compared to a few years ago is domestic SA counters have really underperformed. So they are a much smaller portion of the overall index. So to the extent that there's some mirroring of that index in your average balance fund, even if, if things are very, very tough for SA going forward, it should have less of an impact than it did a few years ago because they are just a much smaller portion of the index you know now now when you buy when you're buying the old share you really you're buying miners and you're buying your offshore exposed counters like BTI and Naspers and so on so that in in some way is a bit of a defense against a continuation of a tougher economic situation in South Africa should that occur no i think that's a good point and i think if one just looks at the composition of the index you've got almost 70% now of the index, which is largely exposed to businesses which are either, you know, offshore businesses or listed here and sell their product offshore or uh, have some sort of rand hedge exposure. And I think that uh, that in itself is a, is a good thing. Excellent. Thanks very much, chaps. And thanks for taking the time out of your morning today. I'm sure everyone would agree. We'd love to have you for a full hour, but you are limited to 30 minutes. So thanks again. And I'm sure you from today got a lot of comfort from Ian and Saul and the team. And of course, they, they are very open to chat. So please do get in touch with your Negroup Group Investments uh, Relationship Manager should you wish to chat to the team or find out a little bit more about the fund. And of course, again, this will be recorded. So wish, wish for recording, please do get in touch. 
And of course, please join us tomorrow, being Friday at 10 a.m. same time, where we are very happy to have Anne Cedric on the line from AVAX Investments chatting about the Rainmaker Fund. So for myself, Saul and Ian and the team at Truffle and Negroup Investments, thanks very much and have a good day. Ciao. Negroup Collective Investments is an authorised collective investment scheme manager in terms of the Collective Investment Schemes Control Act. Negroup Investments does not provide advice on financial products and will only give you factual information. For further details on our funds and to view our terms and conditions, please visit negroupinvestments.co.za.